one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Strength and Strength. We seek to honor Christ in sharing um, the gospel of the kingdom in all of its glory here on Strength to Strength. And this morning we have Brother John D. Martin from Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. Was that right? Yeah, Shippensburg, Pennsylvania. And he is going to be sharing on the new humanity. And this is our first talk of 2023. I feel like it's a fitting talk um, to talk about the new humanity. Um, I wonder if it would be safe to say it would be the original humanity or the original plan um, for God, for mankind. So I'm excited to hear what Brother John has to say. And if any of you know him, he's very passionate about the kingdom and the kingdom message and its ability to transform life and um, bring heaven to earth. Um, Brother John is my mentor while I study here at Sattler, and I've really appreciated his zeal for the kingdom. We were just talking about his age, and you wouldn't guess his age necessarily because of the zeal and the passion that he has, and um, I won't say what that age is here now. So it's a blessing to have Brother John on here again. Um, We really appreciate when he agrees to share on this platform and are blessed by the message that he has. So before we get started, uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise your name this morning for your goodness to mankind. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us destitute, but you provided us a way to be free from sin and to overcome the, the wicked one by the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, and we can have newness of life. We thank you for Brother John and his zeal for the kingdom. Thank you that he has agreed to share on the new humanity this morning. I just pray that you would bless our time together, and may we be inspired to um, press more closely into the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, Brother John. Yes, the new humanity. I will tell you my age. I am, I will be 77 next Thursday. Uh, it's hard to believe that I'm that age, but that's what, what I'll be. I want to start with a favorite poem of mine. I don't know how many of you know William Wordsworth. Uh, he was one of the romantic English poets. I'm, I'm sure he was not a Christian, uh, but he wrote this wonderful poem called Lines Written in Early Spring. I heard a thousand blended notes while in a grove I sate reclined in that sweet mood when pleasant thoughts bring sad thoughts to the mind. To her fair works did nature link the human soul that through me ran and much it grieved my soul to think what man has made of man. Through primrose tufts in that green bower, the periwinkle traced its trailed its wreaths. And tis my faith that every flower enjoys the air it breathes. The birds around me hopped and played, their thoughts I cannot measure. But the least motion which they made, it seemed a thrill of pleasure. The budding twigs spread out their fan to catch the breezy air. And I must think, do all I can, that there was pleasure there. If this belief from heaven be sent, if such be nature's holy plan, have I not reason to lament? What man has made of man. Now, this poem was inspired by the French Revolution with all of its bloody horror. And in the poem, he's lamenting 
humanity's failure to follow nature's peaceful example. Uh, he pictures humans as part of nature, but they don't act like it. They act very different from, from what he sees in nature. Now, it is true that nature is red in tooth and claw. He's not looking at nature quite as realistically as he should, but he's looking at what we all can see, and that is in nature there is an implied harmony. Uh, it, it was supposed to be a harmonious uh, nature out there, about, of course, before sin came into the world. And the poem argues that human beings have lost their connection to joy, which is their birthright as part of nature. They've rejected their unity with the world, breaking from nature's holy plan. So for centuries, men have tried to remedy this problem. And so I want to talk about three things this morning. I want to talk about an ideal humanity romanticized, an old humanity realized, and a new humanity revealed. So let's talk about an old humanity romanticized. To romanticize something means to deal with or describe it in an idealistic or unrealistic fashion to make something seem better or more appealing than it really is. And so you had the romantic period, which began in the late 1700s and persisted through the 1800s. And uh, these people romanticized man's nature. They believed that man basically had a pure and good nature. And that idea still persists. I talk to people all the time who say, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I mean, they really do believe that man has it within himself uh, to be the ideal that uh, we, that we all know we should be. Uh, and they believe that really what happened back here when they romanticized humanity, they believed that what had happened was civilization had corrupted humanity. It was his institutions that was destroying humanity. And so they believed that man was not sinful. He was just ignorant. And uh, he needed to be educated and he could be trained to live in harmony with nature. Uh, in the late 1700s, we had people writing that universal education would result in universal peace and tranquility. And you had people like British philosophers Jeremy Bentham and James Mill, who believed that with universal education, all serious social problems would be resolved, resolved by the end of the 1700s. That's interesting that they believe that. Well, we come into the 1800s, and that romanticism still persisted. Will Durant, in Pleasures of Philosophy, describes 19th century Russian philosopher Mikhail Bakunin, who rejected the idea of divine law. He said, the first revolt must be against a supreme tyranny of theology. As long as we have a master in heaven, we will be slaves on earth. He envisioned a world where education would make obsolete the need for God or the state. He predicted that education would spread so rapidly that by 1900, the state would be unnecessary and men would obey the laws of nature. It is interesting that these people did realize that law was necessary. They realized that nature was ordered by laws. There were natural laws. They did believe that. Uh, and that is true. <laughs> I like to show this picture. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a great, uh, uh, PowerPoint person, so I do mine with pictures. Notice this little fish, uh, in the water. Now he's living within boundaries. And as long as he is within those boundaries, he's free. This is freedom. Okay. But suppose that little fish decided that, uh, this pond is just too small 
Uh, I was made for a bigger world. And so he takes a great big flip and he flips himself out of the water. There he is. Freedom? No. Death. And that's what man does not seem to realize. Uh, that the laws that God made for us to function within really give us the freedom to live life as, as it's supposed to be lived and to violate those laws. And these men had some sense of that, that there were, there were certain laws of nature that had to be obeyed. I mean, they did re- recognize that. And that is certainly true. Uh, <clears throat> they knew that the absence of laws would not be freedom, but would be chaos and mayhem. And so that they figured they could educate people as to what those laws were. They believed man could learn to live in harmony with the laws of nature. They have, they, they refuse to recognize that man has not been able to do that. Romans 1 27 says that men change nature's use into that which is against nature. They did not realize that that's what man does. The problem is within man himself. The Bible says, Oh Lord, I know not the way that the way of man, I'm sorry. Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not within himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. And Proverbs 14 says, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Man's problem is selfishness, which I have always been uh, telling people is another word for sin. If you want to, if you want a practical definition for sin, it is selfishness. It's, it's, it's something within man, uh, that is wrong. Uh, you know, if, if they ask me on the phone line, what is sin? I could give them a theological definition and we'd have a great big discussion. But if I say selfishness, everybody knows that that is a major problem that man has. <clears throat> the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. Uh, Richard Halverson, who was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate from 1981 to 1995, says this in a book called Manhood with Meaning. The root of the dilemma is simple human passion. I want my own way. Everybody wants a shortcut to his dreams. He wants his utopia, the easy way. Food without farming, wages without work, degrees without discipline, promotion without performance, values without value, and peace without price. Wanting one's own way is anarchy. Order and anarchy are mutually exclusive. Anarchy and chaos are synonymous. So... So they romanticize human nature and they, they believe that man could be trained, uh, to, to live in harmony with nature. That was a romantic idea. So that was the first point that I wanted to talk about. And that is, uh, humanity romanticized. Now I want to talk about an old humanity realized. So what happened? What happened to the romanticism of the 1800s? Well, they learned the true meaning of utopia. Does anybody know, I'll ask for some interaction here. Does anybody know what the word utopia literally means? Nowhere. That's literally the meaning of the word utopia. So they learned that. In the 1900s, Romanticism was brutally mocked as the old humanity unleashed its selfishness on the nations of the world. The two most destructive wars in all of human history were fought in the first half of the 20th century. And I remind the people who talk to me about this, about how good uh, they are and how good mankind is. I say, well, then you have to explain to me why the last century was the bloodiest century in the history of humanity 
And this century isn't starting out any better. And they don't argue with me on that. Uh, so let me read this. The two most destructive wars in all of human history are fought in the first half of the 20th century. In World War One, and this is amazing, one out of every seven adult males on Earth was in uniform. One seventh of humanity was in uniform. More than 50 million men and 13 million of those died in the war. In World War Two, you have even more destruction. Just 5% of those killed in World War One were civilians. But in World War Two, half of the casualties were civilians. The estimated death toll is as high as 60 million people. It was the bloodiest conflict in history. Well, the Bible says the end is the way of death. If man lives out of himself, the end is death. And what I just read to you certainly is a graphic illustration of that reality. Near the end of this period, Aldous Huxley, in his book, Ends and Means, admitted that the generation actually had no romantic ideals at all. This is what he said. I had a motive for not wanting the world to have any meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation sexually and politically. And yet, the ideals for a true humanity persisted. Because the Bible says there's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. We come hardwired with these ideals that those people tried to romanticize. I mean, they're there. In fact, even a desire for immortality. People say to me, what proof do you have that there's life after death? And I said, well, I don't have proof, but I can give you some pretty compelling evidence. Everybody has a persistent desire to live forever. They, If they can't physically do that, they at least name their business after themselves, hoping somehow to perpetuate their memory. There is this tremendous, passionate desire for immortality. And then I remind them that for all our other desires, there is actually a fulfillment. We have a desire for food, and there is food. We have a desire for intimacy. There is such a thing. We have a desire for rest. There's such a thing as sleep. And I tell them, you mean to tell me that the most persistent desire that we have does not have a fulfillment, which is the desire to for immortality. And so these ideals are there. Uh, God has planted eternity in man's heart and mind, working through the ages, which nothing under the sun can satisfy but God. We come into the world hardwired with a universal ethic. We have a design sense, divine sense of an equitable society in which humans treat each other equitably. And that is a true, you know, when you witness to people, you can know that in their heart is a desire for an ideal humanity. Everybody has that desire. 
that's why socialism has the, the appeal that it has, because it promises an equitable society where people are all treated the way they should be treated, where the resources that people have are not hoarded, but they're shared so that you don't have the rich and the poor. That desire is there. In fact, so strong is that desire that communism, whose slogan was from each according to his means and to each according to his need, <laughs> had a universal appeal. And they won one third of the world with that promise, of course, which they never were able to deliver on. But the pro- they were able to win the attention of one third of the world with that promise, because down deep inside that desire for what we know as the kingdom of God is there. And that's why I'm so passionate about this message, because it does connect with every human heart. If you start talking about the kingdom of God, that begins to resonate. I resonate. I have many people who call me that when I present the gospel in that way are, are positively influenced. Now they don't want to submit to the Lordship of Christ and they don't want to join that kingdom by submitting to the king. But the, the ideals that that kingdom represents, I guarantee you is going to resonate in every heart that you witness to. It's a, it's a powerful appeal. So <clears throat> we come into the world hardwired with a universal ethic, with a design sense that there should be and an, an equitable society in which humans treat each other equitably. We instinctively know it is wrong to st- steal, to lie, to abuse, to kill, to take more than our share. Even a small child has that. Now, he may not admit it that he has the problem, but he sure sees it in other people. A child doesn't have to be very old till he knows it's wrong for somebody to take his toy. <laughs> it's just there. I mean, that, that sense of equity equitable treatment is just wired into every person. That's why Jesus could give the golden rule with confidence that if we would consider what we want people to do to us, we would have the means by which we could treat everybody equitably. Okay. So Marxism was a secular attempt to fulfill a gospel ideal, the kingdom of heaven. I've often said that Marxism was a gospel heresy. It was an attempt to feel to fulfill the gospel ideal or the kingdom of heaven by secular means. So why did it fail? Well, it failed because of a verse I quoted earlier. It is not within man that walketh to direct his steps. So the big thing today is self-expression, self-expression, existentialism. There is no meaning in life except the meaning that you, you can find for yourself by expressing yourself. And so you just have to let me do my own thing uh, so I can find meaning in life. Well, that's the exact opposite of what we need. (laughs) It's not self-expression because self-expression is a very selfish, individualistic, prideful uh, motivation. What we need is self-denial. You've all seen my little diagram that I've used many times. Before a man is converted, self is on the throne. Francis Schaeffer, this is not original with me. Francis Schaeffer, I talked about this uh, several decades ago. He said, in every heart, There is a throne and a cross. And before a man is converted, self is on the throne and Christ is on the cross. And that's why romanticism failed, because they put self on the throne. In the new birth, that completely switches. And we have Christ on the throne and self on the cross. And I think that's the best explanation of the new birth that I have ever seen. And it's a very powerful concept. So I've said to you now that all of humanity is poised to consider 
the kingdom of God. Now, whether they accept it or not is another question, but all of, all of humanity, you can be sure, is poised to consider the kingdom of God, to at least hear that ideal and what we have to say. <clears throat> so, God the Son came into this world to show us what that humanity looks like. Now, when you talk to most people, they think of Jesus coming into the world to die on the cross to save us from our sins, and that certainly is true. What they don't think a lot about is Jesus' first responsibility was to come into this world to show us the true humanity. Okay. In fact, at the end of that experience in John 17, he says to his father, I have finished the work which thou gave me to do. Well, wait a minute. He hadn't gone to the cross yet. So what work had he finished? Well, he had finished the work of showing us what true humanity looks like. And so when people say to me, do you believe in the finished work of Christ? I usually say, which one? Well, they thought there was only one. No, he came here to do uh, a, a first work, which was to demonstrate a true humanity. And so he came and demonstrated a true humanity. In fact, it's interesting that our Anabaptist forefathers stressed that aspect of Christ's work on this earth. Uh, because they believed that if we did not believe in the true humanity of Christ, there was no basis for discipleship. Because when Jesus said, follow me, if he was doing something different from what we could, uh, what we can attain, then that was a farce. In fact, that's why first John four says, any man that does not confess of uh, the humanity of Christ is antichrist. Uh, because the humanity of Christ is a very important aspect of the gospel because he was tempted in all points like as we are and uh, uh, had victory over his flesh completely. And uh, he's calling us to that same humanity and it is a genuine call. So <clears throat> Jesus came to do that to show us a true humanity. And then he knew that we could never attain that because of the selfishness and the sin. And so he died on the cross to make it possible for us to have our sins and selfishness forgiven and have a clean slate and the power to write a new life on that slate that is free from sin. But that doesn't mean that we live perfect lives. But I love the way it says in Romans 8, 1, it says there's therefore now no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And first John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's honest obedience to the gospel. We have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth and that cleanseth the word they tell me means continual cleansing of all sin so that no sin ever appears on the record because God knows that because we're walking in the light, when we realize we've sinned, we will face it with repentance and uh, a renewal of our uh, connection with the grace to overcome. So <clears throat> the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, I'm going to give you another diagram that I really like, and these diagrams are not original with me, but they have heavily impacted my life uh, in understanding what happens uh, with the gospel. Here's the old nature. You have spirit, soul, which many people have described as the combination of the mind, the will, the, and the emotions, or your personality, whatever you want to call it. Your unique blend of those makes you the unique person that you are. 
And then, of course, you have a spirit, your motivation. Well, before we're converted, the five senses that we have appeals of these three appeals to our emotions. You maybe have seen the bumper sticker. If it feels good, do it. Uh, that's how uh, sin makes its appeal. It makes its appeal to the emotions. And that's why Christians are especially uh, wary of their emotions. They know they can't be absolutely trusted. And so then what happens is the emotions makes its appeal to the mind. Because as in biology, where you study homeostasis, that the body's always trying to keep itself balanced chemically. The body never wants to be out of balance. So it has all kinds of mechanisms to keep itself physically and chemically in balance. That same thing is true psychologically. We don't like to be doing something that we know is wrong. And so when these five senses make their appeal to the emotions, we immediately have to have a reason why what we're going to do is right. And so we do what we call rationalizing. And most of the people in the world today are not thinking, they're rationalizing. They're coming up often with very sophisticated philosophies as to why wrong is right. And so uh, that's what happens. So these, these two then come into harmony because the mind has rationalized what our body wants to do. And then both of them, of course, inform the will, and then we act. So that's the picture of the unregenerate man. Uh, his his spirit uh, is not able to control because the emotions overrule the mind, and then we live according to the flesh. Here's the, here's the picture of what happens in conversion. The little s is replated, replaced by a large S. And the motivation now is coming from within. And the appeal is not to the emotions. The appeal is to the mind. The Bible says we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And so the mind then <laughs> instructs the emotions. They may act up. They may want all kinds of things that are wrong. But the mind is in control. The mind will not let the emotions force it to rationalize. It will continue to think the right thoughts and continue to instruct the way of life. And then the mind and the emotions. And then I tell people, if you will obey what God is telling you, your emotions will eventually behave themselves. <laughs> but it's a battle. Okay. And then these two affect the will. And, of course, the body then executes what the spirit wants us to do. This, this is a powerful illustration uh, of, of the difference between the unregenerate person and the person who's regenerated. I'll just quickly review it. The unregenerated person <clears throat> has the body in control working through the emotions to cause the mind to rationalize and do what is wrong. This one has the spirit in control appealing not to the emotions but to the mind. And with the mind in control, homeostasis is achieved by God's will motivated by the Holy Spirit. And then the body acts that out. Just a, a very powerful thing that happens uh, at conversion. Uh, this, we have a supernatural spirit in control of our mind. Okay. That first diagram, I, I want to quote a scripture. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom we all had our conversation in times past 
in the lust of the flesh, listen to this, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So see, the flesh uh, influences the mind through the emotions. Now let me read the one that describes the next diagram. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Okay. So we often think of following Jesus as imitating him. That's not really the picture that we get here. The picture we get is not that we're just imitating Christ. It's that Christ liveth in me. There's there's a drive involved here. It's not just imitating. It's something driving. In fact, I've often noticed in the epistles, uh, the Apostle Paul's efforts to keep us focused on Christ with his prepositional phrases. And they're laced all throughout the epistles. In Christ, to Christ, for Christ, unto Christ, into Christ. Dozens of prepositional phrases where Paul says, it's Christ working in us. And of course, we have that famous scripture that says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved him of me and gave himself for me. So not only do we have this change that I just pictured, we have a second thing. God opens all the resources of heaven. <laughs> and of course, everybody by now is familiar with this diagram, which I love. Uh, Here's all the resources of heaven. Ephesians 1, 3 says he's, he's blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now, like a lot of uh, scriptural language, we read that and it doesn't strike us what it's really saying. What it's really saying is God has made available to us all the resources that heaven has. <clears throat> in fact, my favorite verse is this one. <laughs> Second Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace. To me, that's what grace is. It's all these resources. God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unto every good work. There are no excuses after you've uh, contemplated that. And so what that is saying is through Christ, he has opened up all these resources. And they're all available to us. Okay. Now, the way this works is... God gives the resource when we have made the decision to do what God wants us to do. Romans chapter six, yield your members as instruments of righteousness. Most people want the resources uh, before they make the decision. But God says, look, make the decision by faith, knowing that without Jesus, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth us. And so when that person has wronged us and we don't feel any forgiveness, we don't feel any love, we don't feel any uh, uh, concept of loving that person, and we can't change our feelings. I don't think we can do almost anything about our feelings, but we reach out our hand in faith to show love to that person. And God then does the miracle of opening this to make that a success. That's how I understand the working of grace in our lives, that God says, you make the decision in faith that I will make it a success. And as soon as you make the decision, I will back you up with all of heaven's resources. It's just a powerful concept of living. 
And Jesus described the result. He called it the kingdom of heaven. His first message was not repent if you want to go to heaven. His first message was repent if you want to live in heaven on earth. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He did not say repent or you'll go to hell. Repent if you want to go to heaven, although that's true. I don't want you to walk away uh, believing that I don't believe that. I believe that. But that's not what Jesus emphasized. That's not what he focused on. I tell people when they ask me, what's the difference between what you believe and what other Christians believe? I say, well, the popular gospel is you need to repent if you want to go to heaven. We believe that when you repent, you bring heaven to earth. You actually live out a little colony of heaven on this earth with other believers. We pray that in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And that was always Jesus' message. We never should forget that Jesus' message was always the gospel of the kingdom. I don't think he ever called it anything else. And Jesus never uh, misused language. So if he says kingdom, he's talking about a society. He's not talking about an individual trying to get to heaven. He's talking about a society of people who are showing a colony of heaven on this earth. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The disciples were sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Luke 9, 2, Matthew 10, 7. I mean, there are many references here. What did Paul preach? Go through Acts. He spent, uh, what, two years at Ephesus? And it tells us what he taught, the gospel of the kingdom. What was Jesus teaching the disciples 40 days before he went back to heaven? Look in Acts chapter 1. He was preaching to them, teaching them of the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus said in Luke 4, 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for thereunto I am sent. That's what he was sent to do, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he also said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached to the whole world. And then the end would come. All right. So he's talking about a society of people who actually live out the values of heaven on this earth to showcase the glory and the goodness of God. Right. In fact, it's interesting to me that the church got so focused on what I call the save me gospel, because you go to the epistles, take Ephesians, for instance, you go through the book of Ephesians. I don't think you'll find one reference that we must live a certain way so we can go to heaven when we die. I don't think it's in the book at all. In fact, in the first chapter, it says God chose us, Christ redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit sealed us for the praise of his glory. That's the purpose of the gospel. God always wanted a people. He always wanted a people. In the Old Testament, he wanted a nation to show what a nation looks like whose God is the Lord. And even though under Solomon, it was not a perfect kingdom. We find that out after Solomon died. There were real problems there. Even in its diminished state, Israel was far superior to any other nation. The Queen of Sheba came, and she said, I heard about this nation in my own land, and I come here, and it's far more than what I realized it was going to be. There is no nation on this earth whose people are so blessed, whose laws are so just, and uh yes, and that's what God wants today. Notice the connection between uh Israel and, and what God wants today. You are a chosen generation, just like Israel was. 
a royal priesthood, just like Israel was, a holy nation, just like Israel was, a peculiar people, just like Israel, that you should show forth the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so Jesus has called us to demonstrate a new humanity in a little colony of heaven on earth. In Philippians, it talks about our conversation or our citizenship being in heaven. (laughs) And Philippi was a good example of that as a city. It was a Roman city right smack in the middle of Greece. So when you walk toward Philippi, you heard the Greek language, you saw Greek customs, you saw Greek clothing, everything was Greek until you stepped inside the city. And then it was Latin. It was Roman law. It was Roman customs. Everything was Roman in that city. Somebody has said it was Rome away from Rome. That's a beautiful picture of what God wants. And he wants little colonies of heaven. And I think when we start to think about the church in that way, it changes our whole concept of the church. Uh, and we become very loyal. We become jealous of, of doing all we can to live out the gospel in a way that makes that church a shining example of the kingdom of God. So it's not just a new humanity individually. It's a new humanity uh, in terms of a society of people. This isn't just a kingdom ethic. One of the bones I have to pick with a lot of kingdom teaching, and I listen carefully when I hear people teach kingdom, often they're just talking about a kingdom ethic. I obey the king. That makes me a kingdom Christian, and it does. But Jesus had something more than that in mind. He had a kingdom society in mind. So when I hear people talk about the kingdom, I'm always listening. Are they talking about an individualistic kingdom ethic? Or are they talking about a kingdom society, which is what God's heart is? He wants that uh, described. We are to be the light of the world. We are to be a nation of laws. We are to be a society. Now we'll go a little bit to the Sermon on the Mount. It's possible by this grace, this this unlimited, these unlimited resources, it's possible for us to demonstrate a society free of anger, free of lust, free of dishonesty, free of broken marriages, free of violence, free of greed, free of hypocrisy, a glorious display of God's character in community, a colony of heaven on earth, as we just mentioned. And it's to be highly visible. Uh, the closer we can live together, the more visible this becomes. And that's another thing I would like to have us consider. Uh, our churches have become scattered and, and uh, there's not much of a visible community. Uh, there are some people who live in close community and they, this, this society of the redeemed becomes highly visible. And it's based on character. Uh, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And then he said, you're the light of the world. But to me, salt is character. And you won't be light until you're salt. I think you have to be salt before there's going to be any light. And so we need to pay attention to the character. So we go for that to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatit- what we call the Beatitudes, which I call the preamble to the constitution of the kingdom. And so the very first Beatitude says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's this diagram. Self has gotten off the throne and it's got on the cross. In fact, it's interesting in Romans when it talks about us being renewed in the spirit of our mind. Did you ever notice what's in the very next verse? That we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. The first evidence of the renewed mind is a proper view of ourselves. Humility, poor in spirit, poised to learn, 
ready to give up all of our preconceived ideas and prejudices to listen to what Jesus has to say. And then, with that renewed mind, we mourn because we now see ourselves as God sees us. Before, we thought we were something. Now we see the sin. Now we see God's holiness. Now we see the world as it truly is. And it's not a pretty picture. And out of that mourning becomes the right kind of responses, and we see redemption in our own experience, in the experience of our world around us. Blessed are the meek. So after we have recognized our own sin, we begin, we quit being harsh with other people because we realize that the sin that really irritates us so badly is the very same sin that we deal with and that we're no better than other people. And that makes us humble. That makes us broken. That makes us gentle. Christians are never harsh. I tell people that what we have to say sometimes hurts people, but let it be the words that hurts, that hurt, not the way we say them. And so we become meek broken and gentle, we see that their sin is the same as our sin and that we are no better than they except by God's grace. And then we, out of all of that comes a tremendous hunger and thirst to be those kinds of people. And the Bible says if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, we shall be filled. And that word in the Greek is gorged. We will be more than satisfied because that's what we were made for. We were not made to sin. Sin We were not made to lie. We were not made to hate. It even goes against us physically. The medical doctor we used to go to told a friend of mine, and most of his clients were Anabaptists. He said, 80% of the people who come into my office are not sick because of the pathogen. They're sick because the way they were living under stress and even sin broke down their resistance, and then the pathogen took over. And so uh, we were made to do what is right. Uh, Even the Proverbs writer says, that envy is our rottenness to the bones. He understood psychosomatic illness. <laughs> uh, and so when we live what's, when we live right, even our body responds positively. So blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled because you were made to love. You were made to serve. You were made to sacrifice. You were made for others. You were made for God. And when you, when you live that way, you are fully satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. These are the people who go out of their way to make life as easy as possible for other people. They are sensitive to people who are hurting. They're quick to forgive. They're quick to relieve suffering. They're quick to, uh, in every way, make life as easy. And they know life is hard, and they call people to the cross for sure. But they do everything they possibly can to relieve pain. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, we know that something that's pure has no mixture. So what's the mixture that has to be dealt with? Selfishness. The more selfishness is purged from the heart, the more we can see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're not talking about peace lovers. Peace lovers compromise. They sweep things under the carpet. They don't resolve issues. Peacemakers wade into the conflict and are willing to suffer to help reconcile and bring people to reconciliation with God and each other. Peacemakers, not peace lovers. The Bible says Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And I tell people, if you're going to be a peacemaker, if you're really going to get in there and work to bring things together, you need to get used to seeing your own blood because it is a painful process often. But Christians are peacemakers. They love to see things reconciled. The Bible says we are called to reconcile people to God. And then, of course, in that, (laughs) we do receive persecution. But Peter says that that's 
a wonderful thing to be persecuted. And Jesus says it is. He says we're supposed to rejoice. We're supposed to uh, 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 leap for joy. That's hard for us to understand, but Peter says it this way. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. And this is the reason. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. There's a certain glory released by suffering that nothing else will release. And uh, I tell people, if you go to countries where people are persecuted, you don't hear what you maybe expect to hear. I remember listening to Richard Wormbrand, and he said, in all the misery of those Romanian prisons, there was a presence of Christ. There was a glory that he said, since I left those prisons, I don't have. So he said, I'm in a dilemma. I'd like to go back and experience that same presence and that same glory, but my flesh doesn't want that. <laughs> but in that experience, there's a special, it's a little bit like Gideon with his uh, pitchers and lamps. It wasn't until they smashed those lamps that the light was seen. And I think that's a little bit uh, what we have with persecution. Is this realistic or is it too idealistic? Well, I tell people we need to be like the oyster. You know, the oyster gets a little piece of sand in its shell. It doesn't rebel against the pain. What it does is it starts to deposit a milky substance around that piece of quartz. And finally, you have something that divers are willing to risk their lives for, a pearl. It was Peter Marshall who I heard say one time, a pearl is wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. (laughs) I love that. And we should face all of our situations in life that way. Problems in our brotherhood, problems in our marriages, challenges, let's call them challenges, temptations to sin, in fact. We should face those with the kind of idealism, and I'm sorry, the kind of realism that turns that trouble into wondrous beauty. And it is possible. In fact, I like Matthew chapter 7, and I discussed it here one time, and I'll just quickly review it. First of all, it tells us how to relate in the brotherhood, correct with compassion. Don't go to correct a brother until you have scrubbed every bit of self-righteousness out of your own heart, because our tendency is to put the brother down, because that gives us a false sense that we've put ourselves up. And Jesus warns us, get the speck out of your own eye, to me, um, the log, the log is self-righteousness. And so until you know in your heart that you're going to correct a brother for one reason only, and that is to win him back as a brother, until you can say that honestly, don't bother, stay home. And so, uh, you know, when a surgeon does uh, surgery on an eye, Jesus uses the eye. He scrubs probably for 20 minutes with the best soap that he possibly can scrub with to make sure he doesn't introduce any pathogen into that operation because he knows that pathogen will do tremendous damage. And self-righteousness does too. And so our challenge in relating to people is to get rid of that self-righteousness by God's grace and then go and correct. The second part in chapter seven is how to relate these uh, ideals of the the kingdom in, in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we relate them to the people out there? Well, he says, be careful. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Those people out there do not understand our gospel principles. When I talk to people on the telephone and I mention fornication, that is stupid to them. Well, that's what dating is all about. I mean, what are you talking about? Not accumulating wealth makes no sense to those people out there. 
Non-resistance makes no sense to those people out there. And so Jesus says, be very careful how you handle those gospel pearls when you're witnessing to those people out there. To me, the best way is to introduce the kingdom and you're appealing immediately to what's in their hearts. And then you can start talking about some of the ideals of the kingdom uh, to whet their appetite uh, for the kingdom. But be careful how you how you convey your gospel principles to people out there. They do not understand. They make no sense. In fact, they're absolute nonsense to those people. The third thing that you see in Matthew 7, well, how do you do this? This takes a tremendous amount of wisdom to know how to relate to a brother profitably and positively and to relate the gospel in a positive way to the world. Proceed with prayer. He says, if you ask and continue to ask, ask of E-T-H. In the King James Version, often the verbs with E-T-H mean that uh, a special Greek verb. Uh, Sam, you're studying Greek. That means continuous action. And they tell me that the verbs there in Matthew 7, everyone that asketh continues to ask. Everyone that seeks continues to seek. Everyone that knocketh continues to knock. Do Those people do receive answers. And that's why Jesus taught persistence in prayer. Uh, it's the widow that just keeps knocking. <laughs> uh, now, God is merciful, and I think sometimes he answers our prayers even though we just pray something once. I think that does happen. But the prayers that really get answers are the ones that we just keep bringing to God persistently and, and just will not quit. And so if we're in an attitude of prayer, uh, constant prayer for wisdom to do all of these things, God does give that to us. The story is told of a young man who went to a philosopher and said to him, uh, you're a very wise man. Would you teach me to be wise? Yeah, he said, I can do that. They were standing on the beach. So he they waded out into the water till the water was up to here. And then the philosopher pushed his head under the water and held it there for a long time. And he struggled and struggled. And after he was in pretty bad shape, the philosopher let him up. And then he was very angry. He said, why did you do this to me? And the philosopher said, well, when you had your head under the water, what did you think about? Were you thinking about your money? No. Were you thinking about your vacation? No. Were you thinking about uh, uh, a new car that you wanted to buy? No. What did you think about? Air. <laughs> and then the philosopher said, when you want wisdom as badly as you wanted air, you will be wise. And I think the same thing is true with prayer. When what we want is a stronger desire than anything else in the world, then we will be granted our desire. And finally, serve with self-sacrifice. Whatsoever men would do, you would that men would do to you, do you to them. Give up self. Put your selfish desires on the other person. And I just think these are wonderful. Let me read the way I have them down here. Correct with compassion. Witness with wisdom. Proceed with prayer and serve with self-sacrifice. Is this real? Well, Christianity lived this out in the first century and won one third. I'm sorry, won the hearts of the Roman Empire within 300 years without lifting a sword. Christianity became so pervasive that the Roman Empire finally had to give it recognition and freedom. Anabaptism did the same thing. <clears throat> Anabaptism, the Anabaptists were the first people in modern history. They were the pioneers of religious freedom. They were the only people during the Reformation that stood for that freedom. 
the reformers all were still using the state to persecute people who disagreed with them. The Anabaptists said there should be freedom of religion. There should be freedom of conscience. There should be separation of church and state. There should be adult baptism, voluntary church membership. They suffered and died. They didn't win that with with a battle of the sword. But Leonard Verdine wrote a book, That First Amendment and the Remnant. If you've never read that book, you should get it. I think uh, Christian Henry Publishers still, still sells it, in which he says that the freedoms of Western civilization came from this remnant movement. That's that's an amazing accomplishment. So, I conclude with the story of Pastor Peter. This was in the 1600s after people uh, quit killing Anabaptists. They were still giving them lots of trouble. And Pastor Peter was an Anabaptist preacher in the Emmental Valley in the 1600s. And one night he and his wife got awake. And there were people taking thatch off their roof. So he said to his wife, he said, honey, we have workers that have worked all night on our roof. We need to get them breakfast. So they got up and prepared a breakfast. And then he went out and said, you folks have worked hard. I'm sure you're hungry. We have a good breakfast. Of course, they didn't want to come in and eat the breakfast, but he persuaded them. So they solemnly got down off the roof, went in, ate the breakfast. Nothing was said. There was a dynamic silence. And then they get up and went out and put the roof back on again. This is the strongest appeal we can make to the heart. These kingdom ideals. And people won't always respond. But if they don't respond to that, then they're not going to respond to anything. This is powerful. This is powerful uh, dynamic uh, living when we live this way. So I want to read the last verse of a song that we all love to sing. Heart with loving hearts united. The disadvantage of a Zoom meeting is we can't sing <laughs> together. <clears throat> Hearts with loving heart united, met and let know God's holy will. Let his love in us ignited more and more our spirits fill. He the head, we are his mem- members. We reflect the light he is. He the master, we the brothers. He is ours and we are his. And I'll read the last verse. Since, O oh Lord, you have demanded that our lives, your love should show. So we wait to be commanded forth into your world to go. Kindle in us love's compassion so that everyone may see in our fellowship the promise of the new humanity. I'll take your questions. Well, all you can say after that is amen and hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. Um, that is terrific. We will open it up to questions and comments. If you've been edified, say so. Um, you can unmute yourself and speak. And also, if you have any questions about anything that was shared this morning, um, go ahead and share those now as well. Um, yeah, that is, I, that message never ceases to thrill me. And I, there's a lot of, a lot of aspects of it we could talk about, but there was something in your first point, the old humanity romanticized and you said they were pursuing um, a utopia, the easy way. Now, would you, don't we still seek that somehow? Like even as followers yes. of Christ, don't you see that? Yes. We, we somehow can't keep it in our minds that without Christ, we can do nothing. Right. And through Christ, we can do all things. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, we tend, we tend to romanticize self. 
That's the natural tendency. <clears throat> in yeah. fact, back in the 1700s, they talked about a noble savage. They, they felt that educate, they felt that civilization had corrupted man. And so they looked at, for instance, the Native Americans and they saw some good qualities that they had. And they romanticized the fact that if you could just, just have raw humanity, uh, it, it would be a noble, uh, gentleman, uh, picture that you would get. People just, they, they forget that, that we are by nature so intensely selfish that it overrides all those ideals are there. They're, they're there. But our selfishness overrides them and destroys them. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think we also try to seek a an easy way to a utopia, like that. It's not the cross isn't quite everything. You know, the the decision to follow Christ doesn't quite cost everything. We're trying to find a a middle road somehow yes. to to find the the blessing in being you know the new humanity. We try to do it through organization, institutions, theology. Yeah, that's right. But we can't. Uh, hello. Hello. Hello, thank you, uh, thank you, brother John, uh, for your message uh, from from the Netherlands over here. Um, first of all, I, w- I want to. Um, um, Thank you for also the, your or your and, and the message of the Shippenburg Christian Fellowship. We follow that, if possible, every Sunday the live stream we get from YouTube. So it's very encouraging for us over here in the Netherlands to fellowship in, in this in, in that way. And uh, if you see uh, David David Berso giving our blessings from us from from Boas and Rebecca, he knows who we are. Um, one addition maybe you can do with the next time your, your message you, you gave on the realistic humanity, you, you referred to the World War One, World War Two, how many uh, people were died there. And I think if you take the, the second century of the 20th century and you think about all the lives of the people, I think, who are killed through abortion. In that age, it's it's more it's far more greater uh, and bigger in number than all people who died in World War One and World War Two. So that's that's yes. an addition to things to yeah to think about how bad it is with society at, at the moment. So yeah, someone has said that Western civilization has generated a philosophy of death, abortion, euthanasia, all of those things. Well, that is uh, on that this is, cross. Yeah, that's okay. right. That is the curse of sin is to bring death. And so you can't serve yourself and expect any other result in some way, shape or form. That's correct. Well, uh, I just want to say thank you, uh, John, for sharing again this morning. I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed that simple illustration of of Christ on the throne and self on the cross. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep that one as part of my, uh, I want to draw it out myself and have that as a, a thing to show people because it's, it's amazing how sometimes those simple little illustrations really make an impact and help things become clear in the mind. 
For me, the most helpful thing is to define sin as selfishness. So then you have a practical sense of every time you're sinning is when you're, when you're expressing self. Mm. Yeah, I found that helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I will ask you somehow to get those, uh, circle diagrams as well. Maybe on our next meeting. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Unfortunately, I don't have them electronically ready to present, but maybe I can have somebody help me get them. Or just, yeah, show them to me and I can draw them or something like that. People must remember, I'm a 77-year-old man. I'm still living in the generation where it was a piece of chalk and a blackboard. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's that's how we did everything back then. There is a thought that you – or a statement that you made that I, I feel like bears um, repeating is the repent and go to heaven or repent and bring heaven to earth. Um, because in that we can see the whole hope of the gospel, the whole yes. um, hope for humanity around us. I mean, you want to talk about evangelism, talk about bringing heaven to earth. And it also puts the whole uh, Sermon on the Mount as less than some unreachable ideal but something that we can actually live out here on the earth by by the power of Christ. So, um, I really appreciate that. Yeah, and that message is so motivating because if I have to live my whole life so I can go to heaven 50 years later, that's really uh, quite a burden to carry. Where if it's something I can participate in here, something very positive that I can participate in now, that gives the gospel a completely different uh, motivation. Uh, and the other thing I want you to take away is remember when you witness to people, the kingdom of God is already in there. That concept is there. They want that kind of society. Every person wants an equitable society. That's why that's such a powerful way to present the gospel, because you're appealing to something that they down deep inside they're going to resonate with. <clears throat> yeah, you see that a lot in especially these days with the whole um tolerance movement and you know uh they're they're trying to mm-hmm. in a very warped way they're trying to live out this where you accept people the way they are um you know you're not allowed to i mean they they have these this sense of justice and things like that within them they just aren't willing to it's like you said people will understand that message but when it comes to putting self on the cross then that's that's the large barrier right there They'll come from all over the world, for instance, to see the Amish, and they'll talk how wonderful it is, how these people, when they see family, they see communities working together, they see the barn racings, they see all of that. (laughs) And then I say to them, after they've done uh, eulogizing all of that, I say, well, would you want to live that way? Oh, no, 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 they wouldn't want to live that way. Uh, uh, So, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Good morning, John. Yes. I really appreciate your message. And uh did I hear you say that the law is self-righteousness? I don't think I said that, but I, I would agree that if you're going to focus just on law, yes, you it will be self-righteousness. Well, I, I believe that based on Philippians chapters 3, verse 9, I, I don't very often hear people say that out loud. Uh, most 
it doesn't seem that a lot of Christians have the courage to actually uh, comprehend that. And I thought that's what I heard you say. And I, I want to endorse that if, if that's what you were saying. Mm-hmm. But it is the law of Christ. Uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he didn't come to, do, you know, when Jesus was preaching, I pictured the same thing we have today. You have the liberals saying, is he conservative or liberal? And the cons- they're all wondering, is Jesus a conservative or a liberal? And Jesus comes out on the side of law. He says, any person who breaks the least commandment and teaches men so should be least in the kingdom. And he says that before he's re- before he presents the highest law that anybody ever presented in the Sermon on the Mount. But it is the law of Christ, and it's under the grace of God. I, I understand that very well. It's just that sometimes the the fact that the righteousness of the law comes mm-hmm. short of the righteousness of the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sometimes misses our comprehension. And we think it's one and the same thing. But Philippians says that I might be found in him, not having my mm-hmm. own righteousness, which which is of the law. Now, Paul didn't have to say that if that wasn't the way it was. But that righteousness, which is of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So there's a, a sharp distinction between the, the moral righteousness of the Decalogue and the practical righteousness of the law of the spirit in Christ Jesus. They're not one and the same thing. I could not more heartily agree. Under okay. that old law, you were guilty if you committed adultery. Under the law of Christ, you're guilty if you lust. That's right. Under that old law, you were guilty if you murdered. Under the law of Christ, you're guilty if you're angry with your brother. Yeah. In fact, Romans, in fact, the Romans, law of Romans. Christ, in fact, the law of Christ is so demanding that some people think that, uh, the, that Jesus teaching there was actually Old Testament law to drive you to grace because of its impossibility. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so that that is one view of the Sermon on the Mount that it's still it's still law it's not grace uh, right but no it, it's showing us what we can attain by the grace of God and only by the grace of God I don't want you to forget that right yeah well I I just wanted to confirm that because uh, I think that exposes a lot of our practical comprehension of what it means to live in Christ Amen. we're not living in Christ without a law so to speak but we are living in the Law of the spirit versus the law of the letter. Amen. Amen. So thank you for that. To confirm that 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 ideal is in every heart, the ideal of the kingdom. Sometimes when I describe the kingdom, people have said to me, you must have voted for Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) And I tell them, well, the problem with Bernie Sanders, he's going to impose it with laws and it's going to turn into a nightmare. This kingdom of God is by voluntary response to the spirit of God. It's not, it's not coerced by law. Amen. Amen. Well, I, I think we can think, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Sam. Can I no, say, go ahead, um, just wanted to say, John, I've been really blessed by what I've heard. And uh, I, I have heard you on uh, some of your other YouTube messages. In fact, I heard a message just the other day called the kingdom constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that given recently? I gather it was. Yes, about two months ago, and they just now posted it. On, oh, okay, uh, good. Uh, sound, sound faith. Yeah, that's right. Sound faith. Yes. Co- correct. And uh, some of the things I heard on the, on that video, you mentioned again today, which yeah. was really good to hear again because we need to have these things reinforced. 
look at and how I many just times wanna... the Bible uses the term remember. <laughs> remember, remember. <laughs> yes. uh, look, we need to hear this so, so often, actually. And um, the more we hear it, the more it becomes, the more our minds can be renewed. You talked about having a renewed mind. Amen. And that is that is so critical, actually, that we uh, we let the word of God actually have uh, renew our minds that we can think. We can think along the lines that Jesus thought. Amen. Amen. And um, I just wanted to say, as I mentioned at the start, before you started speaking, I came across some of the videos of David Bursault. And I mentioned that that really resonated with me, but not not just in my mind, but actually in my spirit. And it uh, really stirred my heart. And uh, then I realized that a number of things that I had grappled with over the years that I couldn't quite work out, just sort of the jigsaw puzzle sort of started to fall into place. And uh, I really believe that that God led me to to uh, come across those messages. I didn't just stumble across them. I tell people I stumbled across them, but I think it was it was the spirit of God. Amen. And uh, and since then, I've actually, uh, you know, looked up other messages on sound sound faith and. uh, some of the other channels I've listened to you several times and I have got to say, it's been liberating. Amen. Well, liberating and, 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 and a tremendous joy because, you know, you know, when you, um, when God gives you light on, on things, uh, he also sends tremendous joy into your heart. So I've had both in the last few months, tremendous joy, tremendous. Yes, correct. <laughs> Look, that was the first illustration you used today. And, uh, I had to think how true that is. Um, that, you know, it's, it's only when we, I had to think of what Jesus said about taking his yoke upon, upon you. Yes. You know, uh, take my yoke upon you. And that, to me anyway, I see that as coming under the, under the law of Christ, coming Amen. under his discipline. Amen. And it's only when we come under his discipline, when we take that yoke, we find true freedom Amen. in our soul. And then we want to have fellowship with other like-minded believers. Then Amen. that society that you talk about starts to develop. Amen. So, well, yes, I wanted to say thank you very, very much. And I hope to hear a lot more from you. Well, thank you and, for your encouragement, David. And I will I will call David Brousseau and tell him that you, you uh, said what you said. Thank you. And I was going to say one more thing, if I could. And uh, Sam mentioned that uh, he didn't want to disclose your age. And uh, when you when you did disclose your age, I thought, uh, he, as I mentioned that you were so passionate about the kingdom of God, and I would add also singing, because I've heard you sing a lot. And um, I've got to say that your passion and zeal for the kingdom trumps trumps your age. Praise <laughs> the Lord. That is far more important. Thank Amen. You. Amen. And it's a blessing to know that this message is going to Australia and to the Netherlands. God bless you, brother. Mm-hmm. Praise the Lord. Yeah, it's encouraging to hear um, from you, David, there in Australia. Is there anyone else that has something to say before we close? If not, um, thank you for joining us today. I believe you're all encouraged as I am. And let's not just take this positive message of humanity um, being what we're supposed to be, but go out and actually live it so that the world can see that this does have the power to transform a heart, that this isn't lofty ideals that we talk about and feel good about, but these are, these are things that can be realized 
in our lives um, day to day. Um, that when God created man to live this way, he didn't make a mistake that we can live this way. Amen. So praise the Lord for that message. I'll have some uh, closing comments or some announcements. Uh, we will close in prayer. Brother John, if you would, you would pray. Father, we thank you so much that in this mess of humanity, you have uh, worked a wonderful redemption and have brought us back to what true humanity is supposed to be. Help us to believe that you never ask us to do something that you have not provided all the grace we need to do. And help us like the oyster to be idealists and realists at the same time. That when we face the challenges of this life, that we face it with the grace of God in a way that results in wondrous beauty wrapped around trouble. Bless all of these brothers today. Help them, Lord, to live in such a way that people can see what the whole world could look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So for announcements, uh, next weekend we will be having a talk. Um, next weekend would typically be an off weekend, but we are having a bonus talk, and it will be a spotlight of some kingdom work that's going on in different parts um, of the world or here in the U.S., I believe they are. So there will be a few different brothers talking about their efforts in occupation, I believe, to um, show the principles of the kingdom to the world around them. And um, so that will be next Saturday at the same time, I believe. I'm just going to double check that. Yeah, it's at the same time, same place um, next Saturday. Actually, we have um, a brother from that is working in Uganda will be sharing and another one who has a, a coffee shop in Potsdam, New York. And then another young man from Uganda will be sharing as well. So that will be uh, next Saturday at six o'clock. We'll have a spotlight on kingdom work. And then this afternoon, there is a strength to strength sisters talk at three o'clock Eastern time. So for any of your wives and or the sisters in your lives, uh, let them know that there will be a talk this afternoon at three o'clock Eastern time. And Sister Laura Curavilla will be sharing on intentional modesty. That's at three o'clock this afternoon. So um, any sisters are welcome on that. And that is uh, a sisters only platform. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, I wish you God's richest blessing as you seek to live as the new humanity in the communities where you are um, and whatever place that you fill here in the on the earth. Uh, bring heaven to earth today Amen. by the grace of Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Go in peace. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.